Real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is January 3rd, 2020. It is... uh, the first weekend of the year. It's Friday. And boy, did we not expect for things to happen, right? We knew we are coming down quick and fast. And Monday is going to be exciting because we are going to have them reconvene session on the 6th and the 7th. Like I said, yesterday is a very important date. January 7th was the first presidential election in U.S. history. Uh, Well, it kicked off on January 7th, 1789. Also, uh, January 7th, 1999 was when the impeachment for uh, former Bill Clinton is a rapist, William Clinton, (laughs) uh, was uh, impeached. Uh, Well, that everything just went from there. Now we're going to kick off with McConnell, who's speaking live right now about the airstrike kills of this top Iranian general. And we're, this is my domain. I was the one that blew the little whistle on Strzok uh, being raised in Iran. And um, this weekend, I am putting together a piece that will, that will tell you things you could never imagine. Now, let's listen to McConnell. The architect and chief engineer for the world's most active state sponsor of terrorism has been removed from the battlefield at the hand of the United States military. No man alive was more directly responsible for the deaths of more American service members than Qasem Soleimani, the leader of the Quds Force within Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Soleimani's schemes and his agents killed hundreds of American service members in Iraq and Afghanistan. He personally oversaw the state-sponsored terrorism that Iran used to kill our sons and our daughters. And as we've seen in recent days and weeks, he and his terrorists posed an ongoing and growing threat to American lives and American interests. Soleimani made it his life's work to take the Iranian revolutionary call for death to America and death to Israel and turn them into action. But this terrorist mastermind was not just a threat to the United States and Israel. For more than a decade, He masterminded Iran's malevolent and destabilizing work throughout the entire Middle East. He created, sustained, and directed terrorist proxies everywhere from Yemen to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon. Innocents were killed. These sovereign countries were destabilized. In Syria, This leading terrorist and his agents acted as strategists, enablers, and accomplices to Bashar al-Assad's brutal repression and the slaughter of the Syrian people. In Iraq, his violence 
expanded Iran's influence at the expense of the Iraqis themselves. His dark, sectarian vision disenfranchised countless Sunni Arabs and paved the way for the rise of ISIS. And with ISIS largely defeated, Soleimani and his agents again turned their sights on controlling the Iraqi people, who through massive protests are rejecting not only a corrupt government, but also Iran's influence over that government. And once again, there were Iran and its proxies facilitating violence against these peaceful protesters. For too long, for too long, this evil man operated without constraint and countless innocents have suffered for it. Now his terrorist leadership has been ended. Now, predictably enough in this political environment, the operation that led to Soleimani's death may prove controversial or divisive. Although I anticipate and welcome a debate about America's interest in foreign policy in the Middle East, I recommend that all senators wait to review the facts and hear from the administration before passing much public judgment on this operation and its potential consequences. The administration will be briefing staff today on the situation in Iraq. We're working to arrange a classified briefing for all senators early next week. Uh, for my part, I've spoken to the Secretary of Defense, and I'm encouraged by the steps the U.S. military is taking to defend American personnel and interests from a growing Iranian threat. I know I speak for the entire Senate when I say that my prayers are with all American diplomats, personnel, and brave service members serving in Iraq and in the Middle East. I'm grateful for their courageous service to protect our country. Right from the outset of this new year, it is already clear that 2020 will require the Senate and our whole nation to redouble our resolve to keep America safe in this troubled world. Now, Mr. President, on an entirely different matter, of course, we also anticipate that another totally different, very serious item will be heading the Senate's way soon. The Senate will have to address some of the deepest institutional questions contemplated by our Constitution. We'll have to decide whether we're going to safeguard core governing traditions or let short-term partisan rage overcome them. Back in December, I explained how House Democrats sprint into the most rushed, least fair, and least thorough impeachment inquiry in American history has jeopardized the foundations of our system of government. Last spring, Speaker Pelosi told the country, quote, impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path. That was the speaker less than a year ago. Back in 1998, when Democrats were busy defending President Clinton, Congressman Jerry Nadler said, 
There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment substantially supported by one of our major political parties and largely opposed by the other. Such an impeachment would lack legitimacy, said Congressman Jerry Nadler 20 years ago. That was obviously a standard when the Democrat was in the White House. But ultimately, House Democrats cared more about attacking President Trump than keeping their promises. So they rushed through a slapdash investigation. They decided not to bother with the standard legal processes for pursuing witnesses and evidence. Don't have time to do that. Chairman Adam Schiff told the entire country on national television that getting court decisions takes a long time. He didn't want to wait. Takes a long time to go to court. So they just plowed ahead, plowed right ahead with a historically weak case and impeached a duly elected president with votes from just one, just one political party. Democrats have let Trump derangement syndrome develop into a kind of dangerous partisan fever that our founding fathers were afraid of. And then, Mr. President, just before the holidays, this sad spectacle took another unusual turn. As soon as the partisan impeachment votes had finished, the prosecutors began to develop cold feet. Instead of sending the articles to the Senate, they flinched. They flinched. That's right. The same people who just spent weeks screaming that impeachment was so serious and so urgent that it couldn't wait for due process now decided it could wait indefinitely while they checked the political winds and looked for some new talking points. This is yet another situation where the House Democrats have blown right past the specific warnings of our founding fathers. Alexander Hamilton specifically warned about the dangers of a, quote, procrastinated determination of the charges in an impeachment. He explained it would not be fair to the accused and it would be dangerous for the country. Speaker Pelosi apparently does not care. Her conference is behaving exactly like the, quote, intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives that Hamilton warned might abuse the impeachment power. So, as House Democrats continue their political delay, they're searching desperately for some new talking points to help them deflect blame for what they've done. We've heard it claimed that the same House Democrats who botched their own process should get to reach over here into the Senate and dictate our process. We've heard claims that it's a problem that I've discussed trial mechanics with the White House. Even as my counterpart, the Democratic leader, is openly coordinating political strategy with a speaker who some might call the prosecution. So it's okay to have consultation with the prosecution, but not apparently with the defendant. Oh, and we've heard claims that any senators who formed opinions about House Democrats' irresponsible and unprecedented actions 
as they played out in the view of the entire nation, should be disqualified from the next phase. Obviously, Mr. President, this is nonsense. Nonsense. Let me clarify Senate rules and Senate history for those who may be confused. First, about this fantasy that the Speaker of the House will get to hand design the trial proceedings in the Senate, that's obviously a non-starter. What I've consistently said is pretty simple. The structure for this impeachment trial should track with the structure of the Clinton trial. We have a precedent here. That means two phases. First, back in 1999, the Senate passed a unanimous bipartisan resolution, 100 to nothing, that set up the initial logistics like briefs, opening arguments, and senator questions. It stayed silent on mid-trial questions such as witnesses until the trial was actually underway. That was approved 100 to nothing. Somewhat predictably, things started to diverge along party lines when we considered those later procedural questions. But the initial resolution laying out the first half of the trial was approved 100 to nothing. I believe we should simply repeat that unanimous bipartisan precedent this time as well. That's my position. President Trump should get the same treatment that every single senator thought was fair for President Clinton. Just like 20 years ago. We should address mid-trial questions such as witnesses after briefs, opening arguments, senator questions, and other relevant motions. Fair is fair. Now, let's discuss these lectures about how senators should do our jobs. The oath that senators take in impeachment trials to, quote, do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, end quote, has never meant that senators should wall themselves off from the biggest news story in the nation and completely ignore what the House has been doing. The oath has never meant that senators check all of their political judgment at the door and strip away all of our independent judgment about what is best for the nation. It has never meant that, and it never could. The framers debated whether to give the power to try impeachments to a court or to the Senate, and decided on the Senate precisely because impeachment is not a narrow legal question. Impeachment is not a narrow legal question, but a deeply political one as well. Hamilton said this explicitly in Federalist 65. Impeachment requires the Senate to address both legal questions about what has been proved and political questions about what the common good of our nation requires. Senators do not cease to be senators just because the House sends us articles of impeachment. 
Our job remains the same, to represent our states, our constituents, and our nation's best interests in the great matters of our time. That is our obligation, whether we are voting on legislation, nominations, or the verdict in an impeachment. 20 years ago, I would add, Democrats understood all this very well. President Clinton had obviously committed an actual felony. President Clinton had actually committed a felony. If Democrats actually believed in the narrow sense of impartiality that they've now adopted as a talking point, then every single one of them would have voted to remove President Clinton from office. Oh no, but instead, a majority of the Senate decided that removing President Clinton, despite his proven and actual crimes, would not best serve the nation. Mr. President, they made a political judgment. And by the way, back then, leading Democrats had zero, zero objections to senators speaking out before the trial. The current Democratic leader, Senator Schumer, was running for the Senate during the House impeachment process back in 1998. He voted against the articles both in the House Judiciary Committee and on the House floor. <clears throat> and a major part of his Senate campaign that year, listen to this, was literally promising New Yorkers in advance, in advance, that he would vote to acquit President Clinton. People ask if it was appropriate to him to prejudge like that. He dismissed the question, saying, quote, this is not a criminal trial, but something the Founding Fathers decided to put in a body that was susceptible to the whims of politics. That was the Democratic leader in the 98 Senate campaign. That was the newly sworn in Senator Schumer in 1999. A few weeks later, during the trial itself, Democratic Senator Tom Harkin successfully objected to the use of the word jurors to describe senators because the analogy to a narrow legal proceeding was so inappropriate, according to Senator Harkin. So, so look, Mr. President, I respect our friends across the aisle, but it appears that one symptom of Trump derangement syndrome is also a bad case of amnesia. A bad case of amnesia. And no member of this body needs condescending lectures on fairness from House Democrats who just rushed through the most unfair impeachment in modern history or lectures on impartiality from senators who happily prejudged the case with President Clinton and simply changed their standards to suit the political winds. 
Look, anyone who knows American history or understands the Constitution knows that a senator's role in an impeachment trial is nothing, nothing, like the job of jurors in the legal system. The very things that make the Senate the right forum to settle impeachment would disqualify all of us in an ordinary trial. All of us would be disqualified in an ordinary trial. Like many Americans, senators have paid great attention to the facts and the arguments that House Democrats have rolled out publicly before the nation. Many of us personally know the parties involved on both sides. Look, this is a political body. We do not stand apart from the issues of the day. It is our job to be deeply engaged in those issues. But, and this is critical, the Senate is unique by design. The framers built the Senate to provide a check against short-termism, the runaway passions, and the demon of faction that Hamilton warned would extend this scepter over the House of Representatives at certain seasons. We exist because the founders wanted an institution that could stop momentary hysterias and partisan passions from damaging our republic. An institution that could be thoughtful, be sober, and take the long view. And that is why the Constitution puts the impeachment trial in this place. Not because senators should pretend they are uninformed, unopinionated, or disinterested in the long-term political questions that an impeachment of the president poses, but precisely because we are informed, we are opinionated, and we can take up these weighty questions. That is the meaning of the oath we take. That is the task that lies before us. Impartial justice means making up our minds on the right basis. It means putting aside purely reflexive partisanship and putting aside personal relationships <clears throat> and animosities. It means coolly considering the facts the House has presented and then rendering the verdict that we believe is best for our states, our Constitution, and our way of life. It means seeing clearly not what some might wish the House of Representatives had proven, but what they actually have or have not proven. It means looking past a single news cycle to see how overturning an election would reverberate for generations. So look, you, you better believe senators have started forming opinions about these critical questions over the last weeks and months. We sure have especially in light of the precedent-breaking theatrics that House Democrats chose to engage in. But here's where we are, Mr. President. Their turn is over. They've done enough damage. It's the Senate's turn now 
to render sober judgment as the framers envisioned. All right, I'm going to stop him right there. So uh, that was breaking. That was live, uh, you know, and we always need to bring some live news when it's relevant. So what are we going to talk about today? First of all, while he was talking, uh, you know, everyone's talking about a whistleblower in Deutsche Bank. Uh, you know, remember how I told you about the Russian ties to DKW and Deutsche Bank? Oh, it's they're that stupid, that stupid. And, uh, you know, it's not the first time that they jump in. They weren't even supposed to touch that until February, which means that this taking out, taking out Haji, right? Taking him out was a big deal, was a very, very big deal to them. Uh, and I, I have a lot to say. Oh, gosh. I have a lot to say on him, which we'll get to right after this break. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says So. So the first half hour, I played live our little cocaine Mitch alive talking about uh, the taking out of the Middle East's shadow governor. He was the man. You know, he never went by general, ever. Everyone knew him as Haji Qasem. And you would never use, you would usually never find him in uniform. He'd be totally in civilian clothing. He was like the commander of everything. He did everything. And when I say everything, we're not talking Iran, Iran. We're talking Lebanon. We're talking Libya. We're talking Syria. Everything. He was in everything. And the thing is, he was very brazen too. In the fact that he would totally completely be in your face. He would, you know, send messages, text messages to our commanders, our generals and say, Hey, did you like it? You were, it was a pretty easy week for you, wasn't it? Cause I was out of town. I was busy in Beirut. He was very, very bold. Now, one thing you have to understand is that, Oh, he's an Iranian operative. He's been doing all these things. He was actually listen to this, placed, and he was the one that led the whole coalition of Hezbollah against, uh, you know, Israel. He, just so you know, was um, running Syria for al-Assad, right? And he uh, was running them because at that time, Assad was in cahoots with Iran, the IRGC, with all of them. And all of them together had band together to take out the Zionist regime. Yes? This is what, you know, needs to be understood. This is how it was always um, put forward. So what you need to understand is the taking out of this haji is like taking out the leader of the shadow government for that region. Shadow government. He was the one that would sit with Khamenei and Khamenei and eat. He would direct all forces. He was the leader without being the leader. 
Yeah, he had the title, Cuds Force Leader. No, he was above that. He was above that. He was above all of them, above the supreme leaders, above the presidents. You know, in, in Syria, it was as if he was in charge and that Assad was kind of like, you know, the, um, the front man, right? He was the front man. Kind of like what we're seeing in the United States, isn't it? We have our president, we have an administration, but we definitely have a shadow government that has allegiance to a shadow leader by the name of Hussein. Syria, Lebanon, Iran, they form this axis of resistance that is shaped and changed throughout time. Remember, he was the one that created this, um, the IRGC um, and Shatera. It was like a, a, a little group of people, the sacred defense and that was what they called the Iran-Iraq War, which lasted between 1980 to 1989, wasn't it? 88. Millions died. And then you have to think, wait a minute, who was there and created this whole shift in the Iranian regime? Ah, you mean Peter Strzok Sr. Oh, this is where it gets very interesting. So we have Soleimani, and you know what's fun? What have I said about spelling? <laughs> Interesting. What have I said about spelling? And I quote John McGuire, old CIA guy. This is what he said. Suleimani is the single most powerful operative in the Middle East and no one's ever heard of him. Uh, Tori knows Haji Qasem very well. And I know exactly how he was instated and how he was trained. People are, are losing their minds on how People that have visited the White House were staging this attack. And earlier today, I was on the phone with uh, Scott Adams. And you know what? It seemed like the media knew exactly what to say. They had the right talking points. Let's take a think back. Let's take a think back to intercepted communications between the United States and our annex in Italy for AFRICOM. Let's take a little think back. Who orchestrated the Benghazi attack? Which person that no one's ever heard of coordinated the Benghazi attack? But the journalists knew. They knew it was coming. Yes, it was Suleimani. You know, something that you need to know is that Suleimani was a very short guy. He was short looked super humble. He was the guy that it's kind of like, you know, in the movies where you see the CEO that's always like in cash dress, you know, like jeans and a t-shirt looks totally normal, blah, blah, blah. That was who he was. Uh, he was the man for them. Now, when Shateri died, which was a problem in the Iranian intervention in Syria, Assad was losing complete ground to rebels, uh, you know, Sunnis, um, the Sunnis that were Iran's rivals. <laughs> You're going to say, wait a minute. So if Assad fell at that point, then the Iranian regime would lose Hezbollah, right? And their forward and their geographical positioning against Israel. So you want to understand that what they said was, if we lose Syria, we cannot keep Tehran. 
Mm? That was key. This is why the Iranians, and well, this is why Haji Qasem went to Syria. This is why he overtook Assad and said, we, you comply with us and it will be fine. At that point, during this time, if, um, Russia had already had a mutual defense agreement, but Russia was really busy with the Russian jihad. Russia was really busy with this whole fall of the USSR. Russia was super, super distracted. They had this implemented agreement from the 70s, but not, not much was done. It was not until the early 90s that Russia started to reinforce there and, and support and maintain and amplify this agreement that was put in place under the USSR with Syria, in which Russia diffused the situation. You know, one thing people don't do is revisit history. Do you know what nation Hitler absolutely necessarily needed to invade under any circumstance to expand his army? Do you know? Well, I'm going to take you back in time to October 28th in the 40s, where he made Mussolini made a phone call to the Greek prime minister and said, listen, man, we need to get across the sea. We don't want to invade Greece. We just want to pass through. We'll build roads. We won't bother the Greeks. You know, if you've got any Jews, give them to us. Uh, we just want to pass through. You know, you don't even have an army. You guys have donkeys. Okay. We're just going to come right through. We won't bother you. You're part of the Aryan race. You're good, right? You're ancient. We're not going to touch you. We just need to get to Syria. We need to get across the Mediterranean to grab the fort of Africa. We need to get to Israel, to where all the Jews are. And so at that point, the day of no came alive. And that was when the Greek president said no. It's actually known as no day. October 28th is celebrated every year is no day. And then Greece actually was the reason that Hitler failed. You know, he, the Italians couldn't penetrate. The Greeks with sticks and stones were kicking back. This is why Winston Churchill was like, heroes fight like Greeks, you know? Greeks don't fight like heroes. Heroes fight like Greeks, right? Because they had nothing. They literally had twigs, right? There were no cars. They weren't advanced. And when they made that decision, the globalist government said, we're going to give you everything you want as long as you, so this conversation, like this heroic thing wasn't so heroic. Let's just make that clear. First of all, the Greeks would have said no anyway, right? Because that's the way they've been through eons. It's all about doing the right thing. But I'm going to tell you straight, it was sweetened in the pot when the United States and the allies that had fallen within nine days of Russia, of, of, of uh, Germany coming in, you know, they were like, listen, we'll give you movies, we'll give you cars, we'll give you money. And then that was it. This is why Greece no longer exists as a nation. You diffuse any culture that can uprise against you with the U.S. being the youngest one of all, but being one of the strongest because we don't have common an ancestry. We don't have a long standing history, but what we have is one flag. I'm just saying. So now, so you understand, these shadow governments have leaders in every unit. 
We have them in the Asian unit where they take up the northeastern part of Asia. We have two of them that tackle Uzbeki, Tajiki, uh, Pakistan, and northern India. Then we have southern India, you know, Brunei, uh, Colombo, all those areas. And, well, the Chinese are on their own. And then we have the crown that takes over, you know, from the South Pacific, I guess. <laughs> this guy was one of the biggest leaders. He is the Middle East's Barack Hussein Obama. Just like in our nation right now, we have a shadow government operating with loyalty to someone who is not president, which makes you wonder. Did they at the beginning of January create and make official an underlying government and declare loyalty? I mean, it, I mean, you know, kind of looks like it. And who was the one that made the phone call to set up this Benghazi style attack again? How did the media know about it before it happened? I, you know, we could pull phone records, but I could tell you it's probably going to be coming from Vodafone. That crown needs to stay put. They really need to stay put. Because this is not how it should be. Now, they changed our plans, didn't they? The fact that Secretary Pompeo shifted his plans is because we knew. We knew. And the fact that Russia is playing a key role here is even more extraordinary. Listen to what Tulsi Gabbard said about taking out Soleimani. Take a listen to this. Now to retaliate after U.S. airstrikes take down the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. Here with her reaction is 2020 candidate and House Armed Services Committee member Tulsi Gabbard, who joins us right now from Manchester, New Hampshire. She's running for president. Tulsi, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Aloha. Uh, Aloha, indeed. Um, We know that you were uh, having a town hall there in New Hampshire last night when this news broke. What do you make of the president's order to take out Soleimani? Uh, This was very clearly an act of war by this president without any kind of authorization or declaration of war from Congress, clearly violating uh, the Constitution. It further escalates this tit-for-tat that's going on and on and on, will elicit a very serious response from Iran and pushing us deeper and deeper into this quagmire. And it really begs the question, for what? What are we trying to accomplish? That, what, that, is the, what is the end state and the goal here? Uh, look, I've, I've said for a long time that going to war with Iran would make the war in Iraq uh, and, and even in Afghanistan look like a picnic. It will be far more costly and devastating in American lives and in taxpayer dollars. And I don't believe the American people want to go to war with Iran. They they understand how serious this is. Congresswoman, how do you justify it when you look at the statistics? The State Department says 70% of all U.S. deaths in Iraq from 2003 to 2011 were orchestrated by Soleimani. I mean, are we, when they attack our embassy, are we supposed to just stand by and let the Iranian-backed militias invade our territory and possibly kill Americans? Yeah, no, look, there, there is no question about how evil this guy is. No one should shed a single tear for his death. But that's not really the question here. The real question is, what are we trying to accomplish here in this country? And where will this decision that this president made to, to uh, escalate this, uh, these tensions and this crisis and, and commit this act of war without congressional authorization, it will lead us 
to a, to an outcome that actually further undermines our national security and needlessly sends more of our troops into harm's way. You know, Trump talked a lot in his campaign for, for uh, the presidency and even since he's been in office about how he wants to end forever wars, but his actions tell a different story. Uh, just since May of last year alone, May of 2019 alone, we've seen more than 15,000 U.S. troops, additional U.S. troops, being deployed across the Middle East. All of these actions pushing us closer and closer to this war uh, with Iran. And this step that he just took last night uh, seriously, seriously escalated the situation. So when you look at their influence in Iran, when you look at Iran's, excuse me, in Syria, when you look at Iran's influence in uh, Lebanon, when you look at Iran's influence in Iraq, when you look at uh, their influence without the, uh, throughout the region and now uh, their pursuit covert and overt of a nuclear weapon, are you comfortable with us just pulling back and watching, just sitting in the stands and saying, pass the popcorn? Yeah, no, I think we need to, we need to figure out why and how we've gotten to this point. Okay, so she's ex-military and doesn't understand military strategy. Let me break it down for you because she's so, she's so flippy floppy and she uses key words because she's smart. But let me tell you how this is working. Russia is the one that now has Syria's back like nobody's business. They just re-upped their mutual defense agreement a couple of years ago and solidified it. And Russia has great interest in maintaining their foothold in the Eastern Mediterranean with their largest base there outside of Russian territory. So think of this. If back then they said, if we lose Syria, we lose Tehran. What does that tell you? That's exactly it. Panic has settled. They know they're being taken out. Hezbollah cannot survive. It'll be very difficult for it. It's done. It was Suleimani and Nasrallah that were together and worked together in Lebanon for a very long time. And they completed what one would call terrorist missions for Iranian, uh, for Iranian interests. You mean to continue what they were told to do. To continue the path. Now, Haji Qasem, Suleimani, right? His, he's known as Haji Qasem. Uh, he had really t close ties with Khomeini. They were really good friends, and he was helping him figure out what and how Iran would move forward. The supreme leader, the Ayatollah, would, uh, you know, never um, praise anyone. Like, he's like, I'm the supreme leader. But Haji Qasem would be referred to as the living martyr of the jihadi revolution. Okay, this is how it goes. In 1999, the RRGC sent a letter to President Khatami at the time saying if they didn't stop the revolt, they would be getting Katami, uh, Katami in that whole process together. And they were like, you need to make sure that you know what you're doing because police are crushing demonstrators and we need to figure out. He was the, 
the Don. He was like the head mobster of the region. I can't explain to you how important he was to Somalia, to Iran, to Burkina Faso, to Syria, to Lebanon, to Libya. I can't explain. And we're talking to the governments and the rulers that existed at the time. One thing you need to know is that even Mossad had coined him as one of the most political, one of the most uh, profound political geniuses he had ever seen. You know, that is something that has been said by Mossad themselves. Now, even though he supposedly lived in Tehran, uh, you know, he was, he was a person of few words. He was a person that didn't fill your eye, you know, as a leader because he was short, I guess, but also because he was that type of, that's the one thing you didn't want to do is have to have a conversation with him unless it's, it was over, you know, cafe or, you know, a drink, you know, he wasn't, um, educated. He was very, uh, intelligence in regards to emotional strategies and people skills there. He was so intelligent when it, when it came to strategies, he was beyond a doubt, a genius in that. And the fact that, um, you know, in 2010, Quds Force and Hezbollah were like going up and ramping up a new campaign against, you know, American and Israeli targets speaks volumes. The fact that we have the Israeli prime minister now under attack tells you everything you need to know as well. Cyber attacks and assassinations, you know, of, you know, their nuclear scientists and their facilities were an excuse supposedly as to why they need to revolt. He has implemented jihadi type attacks in places like Lagos, Nairobi, Thailand, New Delhi, uh, Brunei. Do you want to keep going? We've got a list. But you want to know what the really oddball move and you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Is how he had hired a Mexican drug cartel to eradicate the Saudi ambassador in the U.S. You know, when, do you guys remember that? It was back in 2020, it was a 2012, 2011, where the Saudi ambassador to the United States was like right down the road from the White House. And, you know, the the cartel member uh, turned out, uh, you know, to be an informant for the DEA. Like he reached out to the cartel guy who happened to be an informant for the DEA and was hired to take out the Saudi ambassador. Now, all of us are like, wait, 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 hold on a second. I thought the Saudis were the bad people. Why would the really bad people want to take out the Saudis? That's something you need to ask yourself because who's telling you all of these people are bad? Who's telling you is how they operate? And I'm not going to say people haven't done countries and nations just like our own haven't done wrong, but I want you to look at recent history in this millennial, in this millennia from 2000 and over. Look at all these nefarious people who they target who they demonize, and who they attack. That tells you everything you need to know. It, it, just so you know, Haji Qasem was everywhere. 
he, there was no way that you can catch him, maybe because he was short and nimble, right? But he was everywhere. And there was even, even a campaign on social media called We Are All Qasem Suleimani. No joke. He ran everything. Kurds fear him because Kurds were one of the populations that Haji Qasem wanted to eradicate. That's the thing. So Haji Qasem was both the most feared and most um, admired. He was like the, he was, he was on the same playing field. Okay. He was the version of Carla in the Middle East. You know who Carla is? He's that super duper, 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 duper spy that you read about in John LeCar's novels, right? That's what you need to know. And when you're talking with big agencies like Mossad, like GCHQ or the corrupt clown agency, when you mention the name of Haji Qasem, they'll be like, oh, I know him quite well. We're friends. These are the type of people you want to keep close. So you have to think to yourself, they sacrifice Haji Qasem. The media knew that there was going to be another Benghazi because it was like, man, they had that script and they were ready. But the thing is, this time, our annexes aren't compromised. We ensure to have the right people. And just like when Haji Qasem approached a DEA informant as, you know, happened to be that cartel he hired, huh, how much you want to make a bet? That the equivalent to Haji Qasem, Hussein, on that end, contacted the wrong person at the annex to make sure this happens. Pretty interesting. Very interesting. So after the break, we're going to dive a little bit more into this and um, we're going to see what reactions other nations have to this. Because it seems no one's celebrating the fact that someone that was a very powerful terrorist strategist passed. They all seem really, really upset. And the only one that's actually sitting behind us and saying, all right, we got this, are the people you would not expect. I'll see you all in just a bit. Real news. Okay, welcome back everyone to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So it's pretty incredible how we're hearing a lot of negativity come out. We have Congress complaining and the Senate complaining and all Democrats how they didn't know that this was happening. They didn't know about airstrikes. They didn't know about this. Remember when I said, uh-oh, what's up? Something changed because suddenly he canceled his trip and it's like, uh-oh. See, the only way Benghazi happened was because we had people in the annex part of AFRICOM that were compromised. Well, what if their people were now neutralized? 
What if kind of like how we figured out that they were going to take out the Saudi ambassador in uh, D.C. in 2011 using a Mexican cartel? Uh, what if, you know, we knew what you were doing? Because the media immediately talked about Benghazi. They wanted to shame him just like the atrocities that Clinton did. Because at that time, they had not conquered the camps for silence. So she looked dumb. She looked like she was into it. It looked like a fix. It looks like something that she agreed to. And they wanted President Trump to have a similar stain on him. But it didn't work. You know, it's so insane to see them go nuts. You know, when Haji Qasem was in Iran in 1978-1979, at the same time that Peter Strzok Jr. and Peter Strzok Sr. was there, and it was the time that Peter Strzok Sr. had placed, you know, the Ayatollah there. That was where the uprising, supposed, of the Ayatollah came. Haji Qasem was only about 21, 22, 23. <laughs> and then you have to see, how was he totally implemented into the IRGC right there? Oh, because the IRGC is something that the clown agency had created back then in the 70s. Peter Strzok knows a lot about it. You know, his daddy does because he's the one that implemented it. That's why Peter Strzok was in Iran. And what his first job, when implemented at such a young age, was to do what? Eradicate and commit ethnic cleansing of the Kurds in northwestern Iran. What? Oh, did I not tell you, look who lives in the area where you see the... up? Didn't I say it's Kurds? See, this is what the media does to us. It obfuscates things that are apparent. Because those little things would make everything make sense to people that don't know the content, that don't know what is going on. And Saddam Hussein had sent a huge army at the time to take over. And that actually ensured that Khomeini's leadership was done. That the country of Iran united in this resistance and this huge war broke out. You know, Haji Qasem was interviewed many, many times because he was very well admired. Even Iraq honored him, Syria, Lebanon. He was also coined the goat thief. <laughs> Do you know that? It is incredible who was just removed from power. It is the equivalent of Hussein, not Saddam Hussein, our own home-groomed Hussein. The clowns that were out there know this. We can ask a lot of former clowns to testify to this. Did you know back in the early 2000s and up to 2009, Crocker was actually the ambassador that had documented communications with Haji Qasem. He was the ambassador to Iraq um, for the U.S., right? For the U.S. and Iraq. Um, 
was it 2006 to 10? No, it, it's two, seven, two, nine. Yeah. He was there for like two years. Now, oh, another thing that they found is that, um, they found, oops, slip. Uh, there are documentations on his reports from the embassy. And I'm pretty sure we already have them where, uh, it clearly states that he said it's the nationalism in his heart that drives and loves the fight. He was the leader of that area. And that's the thing that even though Iran and Iraq fought, they had one common thing, respect for Haji Qasem. And this is why he managed both nations perfectly. That is it. That is what people need to know that that is how he was. He went there. He committed so many atrocious attacks on Iraq and Iraq on Iran. And he was standing in the middle being like, okay, guys, we're going to fight right now. We're going to spill blood. But then all of you are going to listen to me because United, this is how we do it. United, we find one enemy. Kind of sounds like Hitler, you know, unite people under one cause. That's exactly it. Now, before we get into more detail, I want you to listen to Secretary Pompeo and what he says about the U.S. airstrike that killed him. Take a listen. Pompeo, kind enough to be joining us live at this uh, very important moment in American military and uh, security history. Mr. Secretary, thanks so much for joining us. Can you bring us back to that decision when you realized you would have a shot at General Soleimani and you wanted to take that shot? Well, Brian, good morning. Uh, President Trump made the decision, uh, a serious decision, which uh, was necessary. There was an imminent attack. Uh, the orchestrator, the primary motivator for the attack was Qasem Soleimani, attempted to disrupt that plot. You, you all have been talking this morning about the history of who Qasem Soleimani is. He's got hundreds of American lives, blood on his hands. Um, but what was sitting before us was uh, his travels throughout the region and his efforts to make a significant strike against Americans. There would have been many Muslims killed as well, Iraqis, people in other countries as well. Uh, it was a strike that was aimed at both uh, disrupting that plot, deterring further aggression. We hope setting the conditions for de-escalation as well. All right. Um, you know, the Pentagon did release a statement that other reason, one of the reasons that he was taken out now was because he was planning more attacks on Americans. What can you tell us about that generally? Steve, I can't say much more, but you need not look any further back than just the last few months. Uh, dozens and dozens of attacks against uh, American and allied interests throughout the region by Iran and its proxies, uh, culminating in what happened with an American killed on December 27th. But we've had artillery rounds fired in the direction of Americans to Iraqi facilities. Uh, there have been a series of actions, and we've watched that escalation take place. Uh, there was an American UAV shot down. The restraint that President Trump had shown uh, was important. And it's now the time we needed to take action to restore deterrence. So we, mm -hmm. uh, the, the men and women who are on the ground there today, uh, we take seriously the need for their security. We're working on it. We've been planning for this, and we're prepared. Now, if, if Iran does retaliate, I've heard some... Okay, they're not going to retaliate. Remember what I talked about a year ago. What did I say before we listen to what else he says? I told you that Iran is split in two. There's the clown agency controlled part and the non-clown agency support uh, part, which is filled with Iranian citizens. This is why the voices from our leadership, from President Trump, from Pompeo, and even from Russia, is that we support the citizens of these nations because they don't want to be in control. And the fact that you see Khamenei 
tweeting things out like, oh God, he's so stupid. Who else did we see tweet out like that before he went to North Korea and crossed the border? When I told you months ago that Iran is done, there's no problem. When I told you pay attention to the internet being reinforced and how the mainstream media globally was pissed. They were like, we can't have our reporters have access. No, they were firewalling it up. Because they know that they're journalists, and I'm using air quotes, and tourists, air quotes, are really covert assets. And if people would just focus on what our leadership is saying, it makes sense. Remember how Kim Jong-un was like, stupid American, blah, blah, blah. And our president was like, all right, rocket man, I got a bigger button. I got that. And people were like, oh, my gosh, it's going to explode. We're seeing the same thing happen. Look at the Twitter feed for Kameni. Come on. It's like right there. This is this is what we need to be paying attention to. What the voices direct from the horse's mouth is telling you. Why are you listening to the media? They already knew. They had orchestrated this Benghazi. The fact that they're crying nobody told us is not going to get you out of the fact that we already know you communicated with the same darn assets you did back in Benghazi the same communications Carla wasn't smart you're definitely not smart either because there's a lot more smarter people in power right now what have I said rule number one with corrupt people is that they are creatures of habit this Mueller report, this insane Russia hoax, it is exactly the same way it happened with the Ken Starr stuff and the whole weapons of mass destruction. Do you remember that? I talked about it. I wrote about it because it is exactly the same MO. A phony intelligence community assessment, just like a phony intelligence community assessment about weapons of mass destruction. It's the same template. It's like they're opening up a document. It's like template, how to remove power from a president. Okay, we need to defuse Bush. We can't kill him because the big overlord is his dad. This guy's just dumb. So we need to usher him in here so that he gets it, even though he doesn't want to really get it because he really thinks that he's going to do good. Let's teach him a lesson. And everyone's going to get on board. So it was template. Weapons of mass destructions. Now it's like, this is where we take him out. So let's, uh. but it's been amplified. Look at them. They pulled out the deep state that has been created for that region. And we took him out. We took him out. This guy was a young buck, a young buck that rise through the ranks. Totally random. What if I told you that he's met with Valerie Jarrett on us soil? Oh, you know, Valerie Jarrett, the chick that lives with Obama, but she's just a friend, not a handler for sure. Some experts say they don't always retaliate immediately. It could take a long time. What are the president's military options? Lindsey Graham has suggested maybe taking out their three oil refineries. What do you say? And I certainly don't want to get out in front of uh, how the president will decide to respond other than to say this. I think uh, I think the Iranian leadership understands that President Trump will take action. Uh, we've made this clear for months when I was the CIA director. We made very clear that these responses would be swift and decisive. We've now demonstrated that. I hope that the Iranian leadership will see that. They'll see American resolve and that their decision will be to de-escalate, to, to take actions consistent with what normal nations do. Uh, and in the event that they do not, in the event that they go the other direction, 
I know that President Trump and the entire United States government is prepared to respond appropriately. Mr. Secretary, I was struck by some of the people that were calling out you and other members of the administration, one of which is Ambassador Chris Hill, who for 16 months was in Iraq. And I really can't point out much that went well during his tenure, but he felt secure, secure enough to make this comment a couple of days ago. The U.S. government has a kind of cartoon image of what is happening in that part of the world. And one worries whether the administration has the sort of horsepower and uh, brain power to deal with them. Do you have the brain power, horsepower to deal with this? Yeah, I, I don't pay much attention to what folks like that say. Yes, what folks like that say, the ones that send out cryptic messages on tweets and in the media and on the news and during the ball drop and printed from the New York Times, Chicago Times, the Post. They were giving clues to the deep state. Have you ever seen like those old school movies where in the classifieds ads they would put cryptic messages to, you know, uh, tell their, you know, uh, you know, contacts or their dude what to do, where to make the drop and what. Well, why don't you pay attention to see where these weird articles keep coming back to the same authors? This is how dumb they are. And the fact that everyone's just playing into this is ridiculous. Like I said, we're in control now. The good people are in control now. They're so upset that we've cut off the financial timeline. They are freaking out beyond anything. Mm. And how can we see this? We should listen to CNN's report. Hold on. Let me pull this up about the assassination terror plot busted. Listen to this. This force is the most militant wing of Iran's Islamic revolution. Okay, wait, I'm taking you back in time. Okay. This is 2011. Okay, where they're talking about uh, how Barbara Starr and uh, was talking to Blitzer about the Quds Force and how it's implicated in a plot to kill the Saudi ambassador. I want you to listen to this because this is really, really important. Even though it's nine years old, it's totally on point right now. Guard Corps. This has been front and center for the Central Intelligence Agency, for the Pentagon, for years now. They, it is alleged that they have shipped weapons into Iraq that have been responsible for killing U.S. troops, that they are backing militias inside Iraq, that they have shipped weapons into Afghanistan, that they are backing Hamas and Hezbollah, that they have engaged in assassinations, in terrorist plots, in covert operations. They are well-funded. They are invested heavily across Iran's economy. Much of their money is in so-called legitimate businesses in Iran. Okay, let's talk about this money in Iran. Remember, who is, what is the only country, well, no, there's two countries that are not listening to President Trump's sanctions on Iran. We talked about it. That would be Turkey and Qatar. Do you remember the tweet that was deleted about Qatar that, aha, uh-huh. so this is where you are starting to see the bigger picture. This is where it's now, you know, it's like when you're tying your shoe and you have that knot and you get to that slip where it's like coming out and you're like, oh my gosh, all I have to do is pull this and it's like whew, free shoelaces. There we go. 
This is it. This is the moment for those of you that have been listening to the Tory Says Show for over a year where I've walked you back to where the center of all of this is happening. Obviously, it's commodities. Obviously, it's going to target the country that nobody wants to play with, which is Turkey. Obviously, it's the Muslim Brotherhood. Obviously, now you can see how the media participated in tipping off and doing. And now you can see if the Saudis were that bad... Why were their own counterparts of the Middle East, like Haji Qasem, taking them out? What did the Saudis do in 2011? That's all you got to think about. And that's what we'll talk about next week uh, during, well, on Monday while they resume session and they start, you know, grandstanding. Because now they're upset that we took out someone really bad and didn't tell Congress. You were on vacation and war doesn't wait for vacation. Just like Benghazi happened because she was sleeping. Our president doesn't take a vacation. Our president doesn't sleep. Our president, especially when you set this up, you thought you'd get away with it. No, you don't. Now listen to the last 20 seconds of what Miss Barbara Starr has to say. They get their cash uh, from those businesses, and the U.S. Has, well, has been trying to counter this by uh, trying to shut down any international banking transactions with these kinds of companies and with these kinds of Al-Quds uh, uh, operatives. That's why today what you rapidly saw was more sanctions from the Treasury Department on the Al-Quds force. But this is an organization that has really been in the U.S. crosshairs for some time. The dilemma, of course, is what to do about them and what to do about them now that they apparently have taken this additional step. So think about this it. What do we what do we do mil- about that when they're using the change makers of Barack Hussein Obama to get this done? What do we do about that? Obviously, we cut the money off, right? That's how we get it done, right? By cutting the money off. Listen to what Turkey, Turkey's reporting had to say. Just listen. Thanks so much for speaking to us. You know, the U.S. is saying that this airstrike or, or assassination whichever you want to call it, prevented an imminent attack. Do you stop? Let's just stop there. Airstrike assassination. Assassination. When do you use the term assassination, you guys? Let's, let's talk definitions because definitions play a key role in our imprint, right? Assassination. When do you use that? Think, if you were killing someone, when we killed Saddam Hussein, it's the act of killing, right, someone who's like super um, um, prominent because he's rich or he's a religious leader or he's a political leader, right? Right? That's when you use the word assassination, right? When you're taking out someone that's prominent. And it says that you kill them suddenly, right, covertly, right? Premeditated, treacherously, right? That's, that's when you use that. When you annihilate a threat, it's not usually assassination. And usually when you assassinate, it's because you want to win something. That could be money. You could be vengeful. It could be because you're upset or because you want to be famous or you want to be smart, right? Or because, you know, there's a secret police group that needs to carry out this homicide. So this, this is something that has happened from the days of yore. Do you know where the word assassin comes from? 
It's actually Arabic. Hashashashin. Hashashashin. And it came from the Shia Muslims who work together against political targets. <laughs> so interesting that they use the word assassination. So this is a Shia Muslim word being used and being purported as a political attack. Just wanted to point that out because words matter. Words matter. Hmm? You could call it um, air raid or an assassination, whatever you like. Yeah, you need to keep your P's and Q's because you know your Muslim Brotherhood, since this is from TRT, the Turkish public broadcast, and they got to mind their P and Q's. They can't say that he was raided as a terrorist. He was assassinated, right? Hasha. You feel that's justification enough? No, thank you very much. No, definitely not. Uh, we're not really concerned very much. Iran can uh, defend itself and Iran can speak uh, for uh, themselves regarding to General uh, Soleimani. But we are angry. Okay, so who are we? This guy that you're listening to is Saad uh, Al-Mutalibi. He is... Um, like a city council person or local to Baghdad. So he's like some city official. And we are enraged for the assassination of a high-ranking Iraqi official. And he is not a head of a militia, as stated by your, your station. Unfortunately, he's, the, he's a government employee. He answers to the uh, commander-in-chief, uh, to the prime minister, and he's a head... Uh, a deputy of uh, a government organization, which is the public mobilization units. And uh, he was assassinated in Iraq while receiving a guest. Uh, uh, I mean, endangering all sovereignty of Iraq. Uh, as you said, they didn't care less, the Americans, but I could see that uh, this has angered all the political parties in Iraq, and angered the, the public. The, the population in Iraq and wait so are you listening to this because the media is not telling you this so he's upset of this assassination he wasn't a terrorist no he wasn't he was in charge of Syria Libya Lebanon Iran he was part of the IRGC but now he's an Iraqi official think 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 look at the geographical area that's all you need to know he was part of what they call the uh, the PMU PM where have you heard that before <laughs> Wow, Turkey. Wow. So the public mobilization unit, and he was receiving another dignitary when he was killed. Who was that other dignitary is the question. So now he's saying we're outraged that the Americans didn't care that he's a public official. He's employed by Iraq, even though he's Iranian, part of the IRGC, also in charge of all the other nations. But I digress. And uh, anger the uh, marjaya, the clergyman, the uh, religious institution in Najaf, for the first time came out with a very, very angry uh, uh, communique uh, accusing the Americans uh, in harsh words of uh, 
uh, abusing the, the situation in Iraq and abusing the sovereignty of this nation and killing, assassinating Iraqi officials in or within the boundaries of Iraq, uh, uh, Baghdad International. What does that sound like? Is he an Iraqi national? No, he's not, right? He was always part of Tehran. Hmm? So what is, remember how Khashoggi was an American, but he wasn't, and then he was killed in Turkey, but he wasn't an American, but he was a Saudi. So the Saudis are the problem. So here we have Iraq saying he's ours. He's not, but Iran was the problem or America was the problem. Are you seeing the identity push? Iran, America aligned. Can you see it any clearer now? That's what I would need you to see. This, that they're saying he was assassinated, he was Iraqi. Remember, Khashoggi, he was an American journalist. No, he wasn't, right? He wasn't, right? He had dual citizenship of Turkey and Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, America. Saudi Arabia, America. They killed Khashoggi. Trump, Saudi, killed Khashoggi. Khashoggi, the sacrificial lamb. This guy was not being diffused. This guy had all the power. This guy, all you need to see is old videos and see who flanks him when he's talking. This guy. The Barack Hussein Obama of the Middle East, the shadow government leader of all Middle Eastern nations that abide by the Muslim Brotherhood that are what? Subjects of this global deep cabal that runs everything. Now, this is alarming. Wait till you hear what the Europeans say. But let's let this clown finish because he's telling you everything you need to know. Right. Airport. It's interesting uh, that so you say this. Putting because, all these together, yeah. I, th I think... That line seems to be getting lost. Uh, so much of the focus right now the is on the U.S. versus yes. the Scott Adams show. Uh, airstrike in this attack. And it's uh, interesting for yes. you to say how important it is that an Iraqi official has also been assassinated here. Um, and that is, uh, what, how badly then do you think, uh, now that you're describing yeah. the actual feelings on the ground in Iraq and how angry Iraqi officials like you are, how do you, could this backfire badly on the United States? Uh, I can easily see within the next few weeks, maybe within the next uh, few months, that the Americans, all American uh, bases will be closed in Iraq. The, uh, the general atmosphere, politically and publicly, is 100% against the presence of any type of American fighting uh, apparatus in Iraq. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if within the uh, next few weeks or months, as I said, that we will see the departure of all American troops from Iraq and closing down their bases. Uh, what they did is completely unacceptable. The parliament is holding a meeting tomorrow, an emergency meeting tomorrow, to examine this uh, event and to ask for a legislation uh, to order the government to cancel any type of agreement that they have with the Americans and close all bases, all American bases in Iraq. It's fascinating because uh, just a few days ago, the United States said it would not evacuate embassy staff, you know, in the wake of those protests right outside and basically the storming of its embassy compound. Uh, and now they're actually asking all Americans to leave. Uh, so it's indicative of what you're saying, that this could lead up to an entire evacuation. Yeah, that... Go ahead.
That, exactly, exactly. As you said, a few days ago, they said they, they will not leave Iraq. But now I think they will have to leave Iraq because I think the welcome is, uh, is over, uh, overstated and there is no need for them anymore. We needed the Americans or we needed the international coalition in our war against ISIS, which we fought, the Iraqis, we fought on behalf of the, of the, of the planet of the population of planet Earth uh, we fought against uh, ISIS. Uh, Mohandas and uh, General Soleimani, uh, by the way, he didn't bring any troops in Iraq, he brought assistant, uh, um, military assistant, while the Americans refused to hand us uh, our uh, equipment that we actually purchased from America to fight ISIS. The Iranians were happy to provide us with the, with the equipment to, to fight uh, ISIS and they assisted with as, uh, uh, as advisors. Wait a minute. He called him General Suleimani. Did you hear that? He slipped. General. See, even though he's Haji Qasem, right, when you work with him, he's the general. So this guy is low on the totem pole in Baghdad's Muslim Brotherhood structure. Now, I think it's important that we listen to uh, what the countries of the, around the world are calling de-escalation of tensions. Now, while you're listening to this, and it's only a minute clip, I want you to think of this because we're going to discuss this. He said that all the bases are going to go. We're going to push through legislation. And I want you to put on your little time traveling hat and think to the future. What's really going to happen? to the U.S. killing of top Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani are almost unanimous. Fear that it will significantly destabilize an already volatile region. Beijing, expressing serious concern, encouraged the countries involved to respect the principle of sovereignty. China always opposes the use of force in international relations. We urge the relevant sides, especially the United States, to remain calm and to exercise restraint to avoid further escalating tensions. That's China. A plea echoed across Europe. London and Berlin encouraged de-escalation, urging all parties to show prudence. France similarly said its immediate priority is stabilizing the region. What is happening is what we feared. Tensions between the United States and Iran are increasing. So we need to create the right conditions to stabilize the region. At the highest levels of government, with the Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian and the President, we're going to make contact with all the partners in the region because this could have a lot of consequences. Yeah, lots of consequences. So, oh, escalations with Iran. Is it Iran or is it Iraq? Because what I'm hearing, it's Iraq and Iran. Wait, should we talk about Syria too? Should we talk about Lebanon? Oh, you mean all the places that Haji Qasem commanded? He was General Soleimani for all of those areas? I just want to clarify that for you. Russia condemned the U.S. move, calling it an adventurous step. The Kremlin warning it will only increase tension throughout the Middle East. Taking that concern even further, Iraqi caretaker Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi called... Caretaker Prime Minister, right? Not the real one. ...called the strike an act of aggression against Iraq, ominously warning it will spark a devastating war. Will it, though? This is where it comes down to it, will it? Now let's listen to what uh, Russian government RT TV had to say about this. 
unprecedented in in how how tense things are. How uh, both countries. This is this is the abyss. This is the abyss. Uh, to kill, assassinate the the a man who is referred to as the second most powerful man in Iran, a potential successor to the uh, supreme leader. Uh, he was killed after arriving at uh, the airport in Baghdad. A U.S. airstrike. Uh, he was he was targeted. Uh, I mean, this operation was. Uh, pre-planned. They knew he was coming. They knew uh, where to strike. They, they, they were targeting him. Uh, and the fallout has been uh, global. We've had. But let me stop. So they knew that he was coming. They knew that he was re- receiving this official. What prime minister stepped down? What's the caretaker prime minister? Just pointing out the facts. Leaders all over the world. Officials come out uh, for against. You, you know, urging. Calm and de-escalation, uh, and the Iranians, convening the National Security Council, they have one message: the entire Iranian hierarchy that there will be consequences, retaliation. The U.S. act of international terrorism, targeting and assassinating General Soleimani, the most effective force fighting Daesh, ISIS, Al Nusra, Al Qaeda, et al., is extremely dangerous. And wait a minute, did he just say that um, Haji Qasem? was the most effective force in fighting al-Qaeda, Daesh, al-Nusra, al-Nusra that's supposed to be done, and all those others, extremely dangerous and foolish escalation. Let me take you just a couple months back to my report where I told you that we obtained an ISIS, prominent ISIS leader in the Ukraine. I just wanted to redirect you that way. Also wanted to redirect you that we have a caretaker PM. Also want to redirect you again to remember how Iran's internet was down and the global media was like, oh my gosh, where? I have sources in Iran. I actually, the Tory Says Show plays in Iran, believe it or not. And so for all my Iranian listeners, um, I wish you strength in this time. Uh, they all know that President Trump will do nothing to harm innocent people. And this is all unfolding as it should. Uh, you know, they were a little bit upset that they didn't have the Internet for a while so that they can stream through certain VPNs. I mean, th- I have a base there because they know that they can't trust the media. They can't trust because the Iranian government is split in two. There's the Iranian government and it comes a split between the president of Iran and the Ayatollah. I want you guys to know that these two people sit on thrones that are opposite. I can't stress that enough. Opposite. A foolish escalation. The U.S. bears responsibility for all consequences of its rogue adventurism. Have you noticed how Russia... And Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, called it rogue adventurism. There is, as of yet, no indication how exactly the Iranians will uh, respond to it, uh, respond to this. But they haven't launched any missiles yet, and uh, you know that they, they, they aren't stupid. They're intelligent people. They probably understand a war with the United States is the last thing they need. But uh, I, I doubt that they'll, they'll leave this, you know, without without an answer. Mm. And so, how is the U.S. justifying the move? Well, the United States is saying that he was the ultimate bad guy. This is this is from the State Department. This is in uh, American press that we just killed uh, the world's number one bad guy. Let me tell you something. Definitions again. Adventurism. As defined in a dictionary, it would be called improvising or experimenting 
in the absence or by defying accepted plans and principles. Now, it's funny how Zarif said that, how Putin said that, and how the former prime minister of Iraq said that. Oh, it's super funny, isn't it? No, it's very on point. Dude, oh my gosh, you totally called the bluff. This is what it says. Wow, this is like super rogue. Like we all know what the set rules on the planet in regards to foreign policy are. You just totally took it there. We thought we were going to do it like this. This is the thing. This guy was a guy that met with our ambassadors throughout time. This is a guy that rubbed elbows with the biggest politicians on the planet and they knew him. This is the guy that our intelligence community, if you want to call them intelligence community, had rapport with. He was in charge. He was the unofficial president of that region. Kind of like how we have an unofficial president in the United States. How we have an unofficial leader, unelected, unnamed, unfaced of them that run the global aspect of it and have Europe sitting under there being smacked on the tush when they go out of line. The same planetark, fake planetark, self-appointed by all of these torques storks that get together and they talk and we have the crown on the side. This is what President Trump did. And I mentioned that on the day he was elected is that he threw a wrench into this well-oiled machine. It's the biggest wrench ever. And they had no idea it was coming. This is why they're scathing. Can you imagine being Schumer, being Pelosi, being Biden, being Obama right now? Not only did we uncover your gravy train and how you did it, but we've uncovered who you submit to. Who's really in charge? And so remember how I said that when President Trump in 2018 was going into elections, what does he have to focus on? The peripheries, focus on the judges in every state, the attorney generals in every state, the governors in every state, implanting the right people in every state. Because when you want to disable your enemy, you disable their appendages. Uh, Patrick Holly on OAN said, Average American citizens being attacked and weaponized with weaponized power that these people have. They are hitting every single appendage the president may have from people that are currently full-time working in the government, from contractors to former agents, former police, former investigators, former FSOs, former generals, former admirals, former judges, all these formal people, former formal people that were on the good team are under attack. And so while they're under attack, while they're being protected, we are taking out all their official generals. The totem pole climb has happened. And when I tell you that Pelosi is at the bottom of the pyramid, no matter how evil she seems, you better understand it. She's nothing but a jester. And King Abdullah, right, made that clear to her when she went to him for allegiance to their group. And he embarrassed her. They're done. Now that they've taken out any power in the Middle East they had, we took it out. 
They had that power. This is what it is. So now they're trying to tell you it's war with Iran, but it's really with Iraq. Uh, it's really the country that I've been saying that is sparking everything. Uh, this is this is Qasem Soleimani. He was uh, at the forefront of the fight against ISIS in Iraq. When it seemed like ISIS, the jihadists, were going to take the whole country, it was he who uh, helped organize the uh, PMFs, the Popular Mobilization Forces, uh, Iraqi civilians uh, banding together to resist ISIS. And successfully, while the army was in shambles as, as they got their things in order, helped by the coalition, but they defeated uh, ISIS. What the United States has been saying is that uh, he is responsible for the deaths of uh, 517 Americans over the years, that he was uh, complicit, that he had a role to play in, recent, uh, in the recent spate of attacks on U.S. bases, culminated in, in a, a U.S.-led uh, airstrike against Syrian and uh, Iraqi units, military units. Uh, that, again, led to uh, the siege of the U.S. embassy, again, unprecedented, in the green zone, a fortified embassy, uh, that was that was besieged, and uh, it was, by the way, Iranian ba Iranian backed proxies, as they re refer to them, that urged protesters to withdraw to leave the embassy alone. Now okay, I want you guys to understand that what we just did was take out like. Uh, Oh, you know when you play video games and you have to take out the boss? He was like King Koopa of a certain level. You know how you go through certain levels? So he was like a King Koopa if you played Mario Brothers in that fiery pit where you couldn't make that jump. For those of you that are old school and know what I'm talking about, we just made that jump. And that's why all the leaders, North Korea, Russia, China, Iran, and the people that are diffused in Iraq, Syria, have said, wow... This was um, this was pretty adventurous. Uh, you took the leap over the lava. Uh, this could be a big problem because normally you're going to have to wait for that little block to come along. You jump on that and then you jump. You didn't follow the rules. I hope you know what you're doing. I mean, we're here, but I hope you know what we're doing. So decisive action was taken and the strike was clearly aimed at deterring Iranian attack plans. So they say, let's remember how I told you that the IRGC has a hold of the president of Iran. Remember when I told you that the IRGC was hand selected back in 79 by Peter Strzok senior. We installed them. We brought the Ayatollah to power. And this guy, Haji Qasem, was a young buck between 21 and 23 years old when he joined and, and rose through the ranks. Trained at the farm, too. I'm sure there's records somewhere. I, not really. Because even the good guys don't have records sometimes. So this is where you need to look. We have done it all. You know, all of us are waiting for the arrests. That doesn't happen easy, especially when you've got Rico Suave. I've been saying that for a while. And treason. And all these things are going to be punishable by death. Some of them have taken the pancreatic stage four and all these other brain cancer things out because they need, they were found immediately. Harry Reid, you thought the TheraBan hurt? Wait till it's your turn. Lindsey Graham, constantly golfing and going red. You're begging for mercy. Uh, 
it's pretty interesting how we see things pan out. And Russia, on the other hand, is not saying, oh, b- bad job. It's saying, boy, man, that was bold. Listen. We've had uh, presidential candidates coming out and saying that was, this, was, this was a stupid thing to do. It was uh, a needless escalation. Uh, and you have others coming out and saying, well, look, the Iraqis, uh, some of them, uh, are celebrating. Iraqis, Iraqis, dancing in the street for freedom. Thankful that General Soleimani is no more. America and Iran should solve their problems outside Iraq. We do not want them to solve it here. We do not celebrate the killing of Soleimani or anyone else because this will not serve us at the end of the day. Now, tell us more about the reaction in the U.S., because apparently Trump has acted unilaterally here. I understand that leading Democrats are furious that Trump has acted without seeking uh, permission from Congress first. Well, that, that is something that they have been uh, talking about. He, he didn't notify uh, anyone in Congress, in, in the House, in the Senate, that they were going to uh, carry out this assassination. So he didn't seek any authorization, uh, which he, he doesn't have to if there's a, a, an imminent threat that is, uh, you know, uh, an attack that is going to happen. There's no time. Uh, but in this case, uh, there was no evidence presented of an attack. And uh, some people in Congress are saying, why weren't we told? The administration has conducted tonight strikes in Iraq, targeting high-level Iranian military officials and killing Iranian Quds Force commander Qasem Soleimani without an authorization for use of military force against Iran. Further, this action was taken without the consultation of the Congress. Trump's immediate uh, comment... Yeah, it was taken without Congress because their money, you remember those businesses that they said that they're funded, that CUDS is funded for legitimate businesses? We should talk about that, right? Do we really need to talk about it? Because you all know these legitimate businesses they have, you know, oil, energy, shipping companies, container companies, real estate. You know what's funny? How's we look at brother James Biden's business, that $1.5 billion real estate business that's super legit in Iraq? Can we start talking about that? This is what's happening. They're not upset that he did it. They're upset that they didn't know about it. They're upset because their boss is going to be coming down. You watch them. Watch them on TV when they come out to talk. An assassination. It's a prominent leader and they're using it. We don't want to use it even though it's valid because indeed in their structure, in their government structure, in their shadow global government, he was indeed a leader. He was indeed a prominent figure. So if you could see it as a layer, the under layer of who thinks that they're in charge now and everything else on top is not reality. This is why they can change it. This is why they attack the president, because they're changing what's on top of them. The shadow government below is in the belly of the beast. Swamp is exactly what it is, under, dirty, bubbling. And it's beneath the reality that we see, the reality that we formulate. Remember, time is a complete illusion, and this is it. Now, in the meantime, I want you... To take this into context, you're going to be like, wait a minute. So we've diffused Iran. I'm seeing the tweets from the Iranian president, you know, 
attacking President Trump like stupid this, that, blah, blah, blah. Their internet was down, reinforced, internet down again, reinforced. Suddenly we have attack on Iraqi soil, taking out the IRGC, not just him, bundles and oodles more. IRGC top leaders, done. Done. And in the meantime, Russia, who has taken over Syria, and so... Uh, you know, Haji Qassam, the IRGC, have no longer strength in Syria. This is why everyone is against Russia, right? Russia was busy doing this. Take a listen. Time when many people look to their end-of-year traditions, and the Russian president is no different. Holding his annual marathon press conference, Vladimir Putin spoke about the years to come and his possible future in the job. One thing that could be changed about these terms is removing the clause about successive terms. We have two successive terms. Your humble servant has served two terms consecutively, then left his post and had the constitutional right to return to the post of president because these were not two successive terms. This troubles some of our political analysts and public figures. Well, maybe it could be removed. Looking back earlier on in 2019, we saw the first meeting between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, Russia keen not to be shut out of the nuclear negotiations on the Korean Peninsula. Also in the Far East, Russia's new gas link to China, the 3,000-kilometer-long Power of Siberia pipeline. Russia has enormous reserves of natural gas and China an energy appetite to match. Another event Vladimir Putin proud to be hosting, the Russia-Africa summit in October. More than 40 African leaders traveling to the Black Sea resort of Sochi as Russia tries to play catch-up to China on the continent, looking to revive Soviet-era ties to many African nations. The South African president telling SABC that the relationship is based on mutual respect, not mutual suspicion. So the past contributions that were made by Russia are not used as leverage for the current investment or economic processes. It's not almost like you owe us, so therefore you must, you know, do the following. Funny how Africa's in the picture, right? Didn't I say they were going to be cropping up in, at the end of 2020? Don't you see that all the social, no, all the big tech giants are now moving to Africa? Don't you see the initiative of the change makers of Barack Hussein Obama in Africa? Don't you see that the people that we've been told are enemies, including us, enemies of other nations, North Korea, China, Africa, all of these, th all of these nations that are considered enemies are actually the ones that were victim. Don't you see the, the path now? Can it, it should be clear because now that we have diffused the majority of the power that the shadow government had on hold with the Middle East, this is all going to come perfectly out in the open. Look what's going on in Israel. Look what's going on in Syria. And then think. Look what's going on in the Horn of Africa. Did you see Ilhan Omar's tweet today? Would you ever imagine that a sitting person in our house would condemn, would condemn the annihilation of a very big global threat? Oh, he was taking out terrorists, but then at the same time, he was running Hezbollah, sorting out the Houthis, 
chit-chatting with the Taliban, Qatar needs to sort itself out. Remember, Qatar is where Taliban wants their headquarters. This is so clear when you take a step back and cut through the noise. They make that noise so you can't see. All you need to see is today, out of the, out of the blue, Deutsche Bank is trending. Deutsche Bank. Remember, I talked about Deutsche Bank on January 1st. How on January 1st, hashtag Trump Ghazi. January 2nd, Trump wags the dog. January 3rd, Trump Deutsche Bank loan revealed. Stop. Who did I tell you was the financial guy back in the day when Deutsche Bank was rising to power? That KGB agent Putin, right? Listen to my January 1st. It's all about vision. It's all about clarity. This kind of tweet, Trump Ghazi, really? I think the guy's off about a day, isn't he? Mm. No, it's not because they let them know. This is how you see how they operate. They operate. They say, do you really believe that President Trump is going to last another year? Yet alone another five years. The man is a criminal time bomb. No, he's a time bomb. Tickety talk, as they used to say, for the criminal cabal. And like I said, tick tock. Time is nothing but an illusion. Time is always in the eye of the beholder. Time will tell you everything. Reference materials. Look at what they're saying. Remember when I told you that the Department of Defense, the Department, the State Department as well, the State Department had their tweet removed. Why is Twitter hiding tweets from official government accounts? That's what you need to remember. On that note, I wish you guys a fabulous evening. God bless from all of us here at Red State Talk Radio. See you on Monday on the airwaves.